right, hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. So Donald Trump hopefully leaves tomorrow and Joe Biden becomes president-elect. So I just wanted to say that and let it linger in the air for a minute. Behind bulletproof plastic surrounded by thousands of soldiers, Joe Biden will take the oath of office, the same oath that Donald Trump has trampled. Biden will give what's hopefully going to be the most important speech of his long political career. One of the most important inaugural addresses in the country's history, because Biden steps into a moment of national crisis like Lincoln in 1861 or Franklin Roosevelt in 1933. But which Biden will he decide to be? Lincoln or Roosevelt? Everyone from The Guardian to Fox News has been urging Biden to channel his inner Lincoln with pleas to bind up the nation's wounds and unify the country. And there is probably nothing more stirring than Lincoln's inaugural addresses, right? Man, the guy knew how to pluck our heartstrings and those mystic chords out of our memory. But while Lincoln's message was the right message for that time, it is not the right message for our time. As John Nichols points out in his extremely intelligent piece in The Nation this morning. That is a, an article titled, Time for Biden to Dial Down the Lincoln and Dial Up the FDR. Our crisis is not disunion and mere unity, quote unquote unity, won't solve it. Our crisis is the collapse of an increasingly, increasingly rotted economic system. The solution is action, swift, bold action. This moment is far more like 1933 than like 1861. But we should also stay aware of the rising white supremacy and capture what is exacerbating and radicalizing folks. But we must have a president more like FDR. We have to struggle with the old enemies of peace, business and financial monopoly, speculation, reckless banking, class antagonism, sectionalism, war profiteering. They had begun to consider the government of the United States as a mere appendage to their own affairs. And we know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. Never before in all our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand today. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. So that was at Madison Square Garden in New York just a few days before the 1936 election. FDR was riding high and he could take on those entrenched interests opposing the New Deal. A few days later, he won one of the greatest landslides in American history. Now, I don't expect or rather want Joe Biden to welcome the hatred of all of the haters in our country today. But he does need to absorb the lesson of FDR. The reason FDR was riding high when he gave that speech is because the day he stepped into office, he rolled up his sleeves and got to work as he described in that Madison Square Garden speech. He did not waste time hunting for consensus or tending to the country's political feelings. It was the broken economy, stupid. 
and FDR set out to fix it. And in healing the economy, he won broad political support within four years. Not universal support. There is no such thing. There never has been. But broad support. He didn't win support by applying bandages to civil wound, civic wounds. He won support by healing the sources of those wounds. And that is where Biden is today. Tomorrow, he becomes the president of the United States, of the country that needs strong, swift action to heal severe economic wounds. Unity, whatever that is, can only follow economic revival, not the other way around. Our divisions are divisions, are the symptom, not the cause of our crisis. The country is divided by profound and very deep schisms. While a handful of the very rich get richer, the rest of us fight over the scraps. We've heard Bernie's speeches thousands of times at this point. But white supremacy, which is on the rise, was born out of an economic model of racism. Now, I'm glad that President-elect Biden has been at least addressing the crisis. He has called out the extraordinary economic inequality. He has spoken about racial injustice and how those disparities have magnified health and environmental harm for people of color. But it is actions, not words, that matter as of tomorrow. In a way, Biden is at the other end of the moral arc of the New Deal. He has to prove all over again that government can work, that it is not just a force for good, but, but the only force that can democratically share the bounty of this country and take on the tasks that are too big even for hmm, Starbucks and Google and philanthropists. Biden has to tell us he will do that tomorrow and then he actually has to get it done. 100 million doses of vaccine in 100 days has a beautiful ring to it, but that's just a start. How about $2,000 a month every month for the rest of this year, at least, as I urged last week, and as showed up on the nation as well this week? And by the way, adding $600 from December to $1,400 in the next stimulus package, whenever it passes, to get the $2,000 Biden promises in, promised in the campaign is exactly the kind of nickel and diming that undercuts faith that this new administration will act boldly. This is a starting point. This is no time for getting by with what you can get. And this isn't about spending money or pocket change for folks that will boost the economy. This is the time to recognize that people are going ill-fed and ill or unhoused, as they were in 1933 when FDR took office. Biden says he sees that. Well, tomorrow, he needs to say it and immediately act. We have a great show today. Napoleon DeLegend will be here with Joshua Con Russell. And right after the break, Chris Lombardi will talk about her new book, I Ain't, I Ain't a Marchin' Anymore. I gotta say that properly. It is all about the history of dissent in the American military. And I assume the title comes from that great Phil Oak song, uh, if you might remember it. Probably not, you're too young. The young men started throwing and the young blood started flowing, but I ain't a marching anymore. And speaking of Phil Oaks, did you see who Donald Trump included in his garden of statues to American heroes? You know, that garden of statues he has to build because he stole all the statues that were in the White House. So it was probably the greatest left-wing ballader of all time. Of course, that's Woody Guthrie. This land is our land, yeah, okay. So it is certainly interesting that Trump's people included him. But more than that, did you know that Woody Guthrie once wrote a song trashing Trump's father, Fred? Seriously, this is, this is a real story here. So somehow this snuck in, uh, not really sure how it happened, but it snuck through. 
and, and you can look it up. It's called Old Man Trump. Guthrie was living in an apartment complex run by Fred Trump in 1950. And he trashes Trump in the opening line of his song for stirring racial hate by drawing a, quote, color line at the Beach Haven apartments. This line from the song will amaze you, quote, Beach Haven is Trump's tower where no black fo folks come to Rome, end quote. Maybe now that Trump has his own Trump tower, he can get even with his dad. We will be unpacking this guy's brain for a long time to come. But in the meantime, we have a wonderful show. We will be right back with Chris Lombardi, author of I Ain't a Marchin' Anymore, and later, Joshua Con Russell and Napoleon DeLegend. But first, if you're not already part of our book club, we have launched it this month. Uh, we are reading a wonderful book about Thomas Paine by uh, Professor Harvey K. And we are bringing in questions from those who are reading it in the book club. And next up in our book club is The Plunket of Tammany Hall. It is a classic, it's a quick read, but it really helps, uh, I mean, Tammany Hall was of course the famous political machine that doesn't exist anymore in New York City, but the tactics of Tammany Hall are what's discussed and what made a man a good politician. Uh, some of it is, is, is shocking uh, when you read it, but there's a lot of lessons that came come out of this book, good and bad. I definitely encourage you guys to join our book club at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You can sign up for one book a month, two books a month, or four books a month, which is the plan that I'm on because I have to read all these books So and interview folks. You also get a podcast included. You can submit your questions, and hopefully we'll be doing some more interactive uh, book club stuff in the near future. So go check that out. We will be right back. back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, Chris Lombardi is the author of I Ain't Marching Anymore, Dissenters, Des Deserters, and Objectors to America's Wars. Uh, it is a book that is a sweeping history of the passionate men and women in uniform who have bravely and courageously exercised the power of uh, dissent. Her work has appeared in The Nation, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, ABA Journal, and WHYY.org as a New Yorker. Uh, I love WHYY. Oh, no, that's, that's Philadelphia. Excuse me. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining the show. You there? I think you're, you're on mute, just so you know. Now we're there good. We now we're good. Hi. Thanks, All so right. much. thanks for inviting me. Thanks. It's been fun to learn about you. <laughs> so, so tell me, um, what inspired you to write this book right now? I always say that it started when I was, you know, in sixth grade and somebody handed me a copy of Howard Levy's sixth grade. And I was sixth grade. I mean, Howard Levy's book, Going to Jail. I'm 11 years old. I'm in, in the school. I read the whole library. And so A gives me this book because she, she just finished it. And I found out that there were political prisoners in this country. And I had no idea. I was a kid hmm. in the Bronx. And I always joked that that's when it started. But it really it's probably started in 95 when I was working for the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors. And I was helping coordinate something called the GI Rights Network. And I was talking to soldiers every day. Hmm. It was a revelation to me. And we coordinated uh, a bunch of volunteers, many of whom were, vet were Vietnam veterans. And hmm. I, I had conversations about everything. And these guys, these guys know, understand the kind of what, how the country has become and why. And they're, they're very wise. And I, I made a joke that if there's going to be a revolution, it's going to be because of anti-war veterans. It's only people that could really, really make this revolution happen. And so, you know, I, I, go, I go back to New York. I 9-11 happens. I start following everything that's going on. And I always thought, 
I want to write a book about this hotline and talk about we need to talk to military personnel and persuaded instead to make this big history in the next two weeks, 15 years. So, you know, looking back to the revolution, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the early days of, of our republic or before our republic, I should say, um, there were conscientious objectors then, there were dissenters then, but I would imagine that they're not very similar to the ones that exist today. Well, there are some similarities. For example, the reason that people joined the military in general was not very different than the way that it is now, that you have people who needed, needed to live in to make a living. Uh, the rich people managed to get out. So in some ways, um, objectors, it was much more, um, it's much more religious. There was the, the, the United States Supreme Court that opened conscious objection to everyone was not until 1965. But there were dissenters of all of all sorts. But the things that were that were similar were, were that that you had working working class, multicultural group of young people who actually in those days, before the Republic, it was in more dissenters because they 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 believed in electing their own officers. They believed that they had much more control over they they required more, more control over the over their situation than they have now. The military has changed a lot. So, so in the old days, it was it was more religious, um, which of course, you know, so much of our our country was found on yeah. the ability to exercise religious, uh, whatever religion, you know, with religious freedom. Um, but what? How did how did that manifest? Like, why was it that that specifically was well, a version of dissent? Well, it's conscious objection is was founded on, on by in, in the nineteenth century of. In the 15th, 16th century, when the the Reformation happened, and you had all these 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 groups of of that did not believe in just war. They were like, look, Jesus ungirt every soldier when he when he disarmed Paul, and they are now Mennonites. And so there was there were cases of people refusing to take to take arms when they were told to. Starting there, so it was like and a humanist so, movement coming from a religious, a, a, a religious mindset. Yeah, but it's it's a religious mindset that doesn't include the the reference for authority that so many religions have now. Right. So I mean, today it's 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 interesting to see how this has evolved and and why it. Is, I mean, of course, there are still people who who protest war that come from different religious backgrounds, but the rise of the religious right in this country has kind of drowned out whoever that does, whether it's a nun uh, or a group of nuns, you know, it, it just seems like the, the religious right is drowning out the more traditional uh, religious aspect of this. It's, I often think about, um, have you interviewed Frida Berrigan yet? Frida Berrigan, whose father was Philip Berrigan? Berrigans are, are I, always, I always joke to my mother that, just want, I don't want, just want to become a Catholic again because I would become that kind of Catholic. And there's just that strong strange, but it's true. The religious right has kind of tainted religion to a lot of people. And you, you've got the, it's the combination of Christian right and white supremacy. Exactly. And, and that that's, you know, that, that um, we saw a lot of that last week. People were, right. were praying in front of the Capitol before they then invaded the sacred space because they, that it's very same thing to them. The army of God people. 
So this is interesting that you say that because I do think that this ties in before we get to to recent dissenters. Um, the space that we of of whatever this this convergence of religious right, military people, uh, Trump supporters, and white supremacy, and not to mention misogyny, because there's some really harsh uh, statements being made by a lot of these folks against the squad and any, basically any any women. Um, what you just said, you know, they they, they basically they went to the, they went into the Capitol. If you haven't seen these videos, they went into the Capitol. Uh, the QAnon uh, shaman guy and a group of other folks that are currently, you know, whether they're law enforcement or military, they went there to the podium podium and prayed. Everybody in there prayed to Jesus. And it just, um, it really blew me away because like, I, I, I think that it's not a new phenomenon. I think that we've known that these that this convergence has existed for a while, but mm-hmm. it is taking a new shape. Um, and it's not. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. We're having a little closet, bit of you know, we're having a little bit of operating under the under the surface for. Right, it's been operating <laughs> under mean, the surface I, for a I while. I said it's coming out. It's coming out from under. It's coming out. You know, it's it's coming out from under the surface. I mean, right, it's coming out from under the surface, but there's also. Uh, they're they're like modernizing it to appeal to the next generation of distressed, angry, uh, probably a lot of folks with PTSD, mm-hmm. uh, you know, during a time of economic instability when folks uh, are, are have been taught to channel their energy towards the others rather than mm-hmm. the others, meaning people of color, women, immigrants, yeah. uh, et cetera. And and distrust the institutions, like blaming them for creating this 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 situation. But by all means, I mean, if you're looking specifically at, at folks from law enforcement or the military, what's really strange to me is they're 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 taught to follow the chain of command, to listen to orders. I mean, to 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 listen to their leaders. And it seems like it's a weird form of dissent, meaning before we get to the left wing dissent, this well, is a weird dissent that's happening right now. I mean, it's funny because I I, I had a thing at Foster Post last night and I knew that people were going to ask me this question. And I had a decision to make when I was writing this book, how much press was I going to give to Mr. McVeigh? And deciding that folks- was... His background, he, he was the Oklahoma City. Yeah, he was the guy who, who bombed the, uh, embassy, the, the, the building in Oklahoma City in 1995. The federal building. And I have one line there calls it, he was the veteran who broke the, the decade apart. And there's so, a lot of good research around this stuff. And that a lot of Vietnam veterans who got attached to white power. And I decided that that was not something that I personally was going to write about that much. Hmm. Even though I, I understand that it's important. That's fascinating. Um, and yet I just came out of a meeting with the military law task force of ta- uh, our anti-racism committee talking about what kind of actions you're trying to take in, in coalition with who. Mm-hmm. Because the fact is that there are so many people who are not those people. So many people in the, in the military and in supporting in organizations that support military and certainly peace organizations. And they're all trying to come up with strategies because mm. to support people who are not this way mm. and try and somehow try to be able to reach to on the, on the base level, which is not that easy to do. So, I mean, when we look back I'm at dismissing you, I'm just saying that this is, this is, this is why, um, right. I, 
don't know what I would say with that, that person, a woman who, who got killed, who's Air Force veteran. Right. I don't know what I'd say to her. It's, but it's, it has to be some language. Well, let's talk about the draft. When the draft ended, did we see dissent go away? I mean, it's, it, I, and, and, and let's be clear, like we, we know very, I think it's sort of universally known that uh, the U.S. military and army is, is predatory and that they go to uh, communities and promise college and yeah. to see the world and all these gimmicks. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's still trying to, I mean, essentially, I, I'll say it, prey on, on folks with financial rewards and they're, they're young kids. Oh, the poverty draft. Yes, it's the poverty draft, right. Um, so it's, it's, it's not that like the military isn't diverse. There's clearly yeah. diversity in the military. And, but there is a, there's a, there are a lot of people who come, who go to the military to, to make sure that they're financially stable so that yeah. uh, there are benefits for life. There's healthcare, et cetera. Um, not understanding what they're getting into, or maybe they do. I don't, I mean, I, I don't know what the recent research is, but in terms of dissent mm-hmm. post draft, have you seen a shift? Well, it's, it's shift. I, I've seen, you see, because as you say, there's military cast now. There's, it, it's, it, and so it's a different proportion of who's there. And the military is very smart. And they also made it that um, it's all about the unit. And so if somebody screws something up, they're, they're hurting their buddies. And that's hard. Um, but uh, you do see that there have been, as you know, in the Iraq war, there was a lot. And even now with the drone war, everything we know was from was people who were in that who were working there who exposed it. But it's it's uh it happens in a different way. And and mm-hmm. in some ways, I mean, I was talking to people last last night, there's not a mass movement supporting those right. people. And there should be. Well it's interesting and, you say that it's happening in a different way. I mean you, you part of the strategy of the drone war, right? Um, and, you know, training kids through video games. I mean, just yeah. so many disgusting things that they use. Is it desensitizes you? It desensitizes a, a soldier from feeling the emotions you feel when you, you shoot somebody in front of you, a real live human being. But on the other hand, because it's a drone, it's you're, you're operating it for remotely thousands of miles away, most likely. Um, but on the other hand, it also... Because you're not in the battle, it also desensitizes you in the on the opposite side. So someone who might logically understand what's happening might be like, "Well, what? They're not in in battle. They're not in battle with their brothers and feeling like there's a loyalty." Do you see what I'm saying? So it's 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 and very I, interesting. I'm to about, see. I talked to a named Brendan Bryant, who was you saw in the book. Um, they're not, not desensitized. They're they're having they are witnessing in real time what's going on. Sometimes they're following the person for weeks. And then they do this. Right. And then right. they have to process it later. Or reality winner, who you know about. Right, of course. And she and she had had to turn parts of herself off in order to do her job. And then eventually eventually it just dissented. So it's it's a hard path to be able to process that. But I don't I would not say that those people are terrible completely desensitized. It's right. Cope with it. It's different. And, it's a different thing. It's yeah. not a, yeah, you're, you're not in the, I mean, the and, and not every situation also is 
you're following this one person for months. Sometimes the target is a party or a, yeah, a, sure. a, a building that turns out to be a school and they thought it was a yeah. weapons facility, et cetera. And, so, then, and then afterward, I don't know what the processes are. And there's a little bit like, like the police department, if you shoot somebody, they, they have a process. They have a process for people in that time. But I don't know how, how it works. And I don't think the dissent is, not, is part of what they, they teach you to do, be able to do. So it's really on, on them. And again, we don't have a lot of support systems that we right. should. So what, what, what usually does happen when a soldier decides to dissent? Um, they, they, Garrett Reffenhagen in Iraq found a band that he agreed with that he then start, wrote letters to. And he started one of the first anti-military blogs. He's now the president of Severance for Peace, two years later. Um, so each of them has people, they do whatever tools they have. They reach out to people that they that they've heard about a lot of the time. And there's there's a Dissent for Conscience and War, which is an organization I'm on the board of, and they they handle conscientious objection in particular, but they also if they will any if they did. What I think military from September to need anything. Oh, GI Rights Network, GIRights.org, and it's the hotlining call. And that that has happens on and off. Um, and and they reach out and they decide aside. Sometimes they they will get out on on in stages. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of blathering this, no, but it, it, they first they want to know they want to get out and they, they learn kind of their CO. It's not easy to get out of CO. They, they want to find out they've got some emotional problems they get out of, but, or they have medical issues. There's a lot of things. They can, so they find it, they, they get a, a advice through but, different organizations to exactly. And there's to also properly get oh, out without being, and they write, they become writers, right? There are so many, so many young soldiers who are in warrior writers. Some of our best new novelists come from the military. Hmm. They, they learn to express things in ways mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, 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 it's a fascinating story. Um, we're having a little bit of sound issues, so I apologize to everybody, but uh, hopefully we can have you back on soon and we can talk a little bit more in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just a Wi-Fi, like a little bit of a Wi-Fi um, issue. I, but... I, is it, is it is my, is my thing? Is, is this it's, it's, it's okay. We're, I mean, we can, we'll, we'll figure it out in, in post, but um, Chris Lombardi, really interesting book. Go check out her book. Uh, it is it is out right now. It's called I Ain't Marching Anymore, Dissenters, Deserters, and Objectors to Americans War, America's Wars. Uh, fascinating conversation for right now, especially as we go into a new administration. We see how uh, former Foreign Service Chair <laughs> Joe Biden uh, really, really takes yeah. on. <laughs> That's it. He's got the old gang. Exactly. Exactly. We will see. All right, everybody, we will be right back after the break with Joshua Con Russell and Napoleon DeLegend. Thanks, Chris. All right, welcome back to the Nomi Keys Show. Guys, make sure to smash that like button, click subscribe. That is how our show is growing. And thank you to everybody on Twitter. Twitch, we see, we hear you. We're excited to be part of the Twitch community. I may have to be taught how to do some gaming. I, I, I think our team has convinced me. Um, it's not that I'm against gaming. It's that 
I'm addicted to things like that. And I'm afraid that if I start to become a gamer, I'm just going to stop doing everything else in my life. And then, I mean, the next thing, you know, I'm going to be competing with a on piker and I'm just going to be gaming and, and streaming my life during all waking moments. <laughs> That's 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 the fear. So, anyways, thanks to everybody in the Twitch community. I am excited. Uh, welcome back, Joshua Khan Russell. He is the executive director of the Wildfire Project, and Napoleon Legend, who is of course a an Afrobeat and hip hop artist. Uh, two regulars of the show. Welcome, Napoleon. I like your background. It's like very complimentary to mine. It is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, so much to discuss today. I want to lead off with uh, something that gives me a little bit of hope, a little bit of hope, because not really there right now. And I know it gives Joshua some hope because he was involved in this effort. Uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, which was a huge fight, if for those of you might recall, uh, went on for years, taking on the Obama administration, and then it was being reversed. Uh, with with the Biden or with the uh, Trump administration, well, Biden has announced he plans to take away the Keystone XL pipeline permit on his first day of office, and credits the work of indigenous communities. Uh, maybe maybe this is a result of having Deb Holland on as a Department of Interior. Maybe maybe she's got his ear, or maybe he's paying attention to the world around him. I don't know. But Joshua, you were involved in this fight. How do you feel today? What's your take on all this? Everyone I know is so excited. We're so excited. And we're also, you know, not not fully exhaling till the ink is, is dry because this has been like a zombie pipeline that like we keep defeating and it keeps coming back over and over again. But a lot of us think this is this is ho hopefully going to be it. It's going to be done. This is just for context for folks. Um, We've been fighting this thing for 11 years. It's a multi, multi-billion dollar pipeline that was the crown jewel of the um, North American fossil fuel industry. Um, it threatened the water, livelihood, land, and health of tens of millions of people. Um, it was a campaign that I, I um, helped build from uh, the beginning of, like, my entire life for five years. Um, and we should, we should have a much deeper interview about some of the lessons of what it was like, because it was the first... Um, uh, campaign of its size to target o uh, Obama from the left um, during that period. And it was a really broad coalition um, led by indigenous communities, especially groups like Indigenous Environmental Network. Uh, but it also included, you know, ranchers and farmers. There was all of these really, you know, unlikely alliances. There's actually this thing uh, that we joked around. We called it the CIA. It was the Cowboy Indian Alliance is what they called themselves. Of um, Oh, no, be careful. They're going to come for you now. <laughs> Joshua Pond Russell, but, um, the CIA. It was... Uh, it, it involves such a broad swath of people over the course of over a decade and, and included so many like fits and starts. There was all of this heroic resistance along the Gulf Coast, fighting the southern leg of the pipeline from groups like Tejas. And it was primarily a direct action campaign. Um, there, there was a lot of different aspects of it. There were legal avenues. There were advocacy ag avenues. But um, it kicked off with... Um, there, we, we did 14 days of civil disobedience at the White House. This was in 2011, just before Occupy was really getting going. And then it kind of dovetailed alongside that. And um, I was the lead trainer for that. So got to coordinate these actions, supporting people risking arrest for the first time in their lives. Um, not only that, but it was 
a doorway into the movement for just thousands and thousands of people. Um, and actually, if I can give a quick plug, there's uh, I actually edited a book on it called the, a, a Line in the Tar Sands. And there's a chapter in here that after the first four years of the fight, we really distilled a lot of lessons for organizers uh, from what we were learning uh, with the different kind of, you know, we, we were trying to do things really differently than we had been taught to do them. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's, but, it's interesting because, yeah. um, you know, now we're, we're, we're facing, I mean, I really hope folks haven't been conditioned by Trump because it seems like all the organizing that was done uh, and learned over the Obama years just it didn't matter it, it, under, I mean, there was no way to get to Trump's brain. I mean, what even people in his office and his daughter and his, 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 his son-in-law, I mean, they couldn't even get into him. Uh, he had folks shouting at him from outside of his window protests throughout the Trump administration. You could have million, the largest marches in history, the women's March and the uprisings of the last year um, in 2020. And, and it did not impact him at all. Mm-hmm. So Napoleon, um, it's it's almost like we have to deprogram ourselves because he like numbed us and i worry that folks are going to are exhausted and may not be and and want a little bit of relief and may not realize that the organizing might be even more tactical and uh and i don't want to dare i say easier (laughs) different uh than the kind of organizing under trump under biden because because of the situation the moment that we're in and also just because Biden, as far as I know, is not a sociopath. <laughs> so he may not be the perfect man, but probably isn't a sociopath. And he's at least responsive to groups. So, I mean, what do you think, Napoleon? Do you have hope that that we now have a moment where we can push back? I, I have a lot of hope, actually. I, I, I think, like, this is definitely a huge, huge victory. I'm still, we still have to wait for it to actually happen. But um, if it does happen... I mean, it shows that, you know, things can actually change and it's, it's actually, I, I will hope that it will add fuel to the fire to, for, for, for all the organizing, all the groundwork to keep going and to keep going even harder because now is really our chance to really move the ball down the field. And um, also it, it, it's, it's kind of um, a testament to, to long-term thinking because yeah. You know, I think if they were to start organizing, you see, just said eleven years—that is like a whole decade. That's that's ridiculous. But it takes time for these things to to happen, and and I, I hope we do take advantage of 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 these victories and create a momentum and just keep it going. It's interesting you say that because even if there's organizing for years, you sometimes have these little moments where it seems like they come out of nowhere, but it's and are unrelated to different types of movements organizing. Here's a little example, uh, Standing Rock, for instance. Standing Rock uh, was, there's a much bigger story about, um, about that, but in the Bernie campaign, I, I traveled in 2016 uh, in an RV across uh, the California coast. And we met with, uh, with Shailene Woodley and Rosario Dawson and Kendrick uh, Wilson. He, we, we went through um, in this RV campaigning for Bernie Sanders and we met with different groups because we're all surrogates. And one group that we met with was a group of uh, college students who were indigenous. And a couple of them were from North Dakota and said, listen, there's this pipeline that you're thinking um, of building in our community. And some teenagers want to run across the country and deliver petitions to Capitol Hill. And, you know, credit to Shailene Woodley. Like she really, uh, and I say invested, like she really invested in the organizing structures that were needed to support 
and, and back and help amplify uh, what these teenagers were doing, which eventually formed into this occupation at Standing Rock. Um, now, that went on for, you know, that, that couldn't have happened if, if the work hadn't been done with Keystone XL. But it also couldn't, what came out of that was a little known uh, woman who was a volunteer on the Bernie Sanders campaign named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went to Standing Rock and was deeply moved and inspired after that to run for Congress. So these things are all, I mean, it's, 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 it's strange and beautiful and um, mystical in a way to see how all that hard work has a deep effect on other, hard, uh, other work and other victories and losses. Uh, but someone, you never know, who gets inspired and something happens and that creates a wave. Um, I want to pivot. Real- oh, go ahead, Joshua. Go ahead. Can I, oh, just one, one quick thing, just to say that, you know, movements are ecosystems and that Indigenous sovereignty movements in this country are some of the furthest seeing movements um, that, that have ever emerged. Uh, and I think that uh, this could be a moment where a lot of other social movement sectors could humble themselves to learn from indigenous sovereignty movements. And to what Napoleon was saying with that momentum piece, um, organizers are already trying to build on this to push for um, action on the Dakota Access Pipeline, as well as Line 3 and others, as well as even with the Keystone, there's a lot of reparations that are necessary. Right. You know, the removal of toxic materials, including pipe that's been laid, um, you know, removing fees and jail time from land protectors, um, right. you know, reparations made for stewarding the land and just want to say one one quick tiny little story because on our, our first day that we were locking down in front of the white house um i was supporting this uh 85 year old woman who was getting out of jail it was her first time getting arrested and she said you know when i saw you young people leading these trainings i thought yes the youth are gonna save us but then I looked like to, to next to me to see people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and I thought, no, we have to do it together. And it was just such this beautiful, like intergenerational uh, moments of of solidarity. And so uh, that's that's what I'm remembering on 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 this day. We have day. to learn from our elders. Yeah. All right. So I uh, I want to give us a little hope because. I, I mean, I love, I'm, I'm such a Cori Bush fan. Uh, I'm a little biased, but <laughs> knowing her, but Cori Bush has been tearing it up on, on air since before she got elected, but uh, pretty much since she won her primary and really showing the world what so many of us saw in her for, for the last several years. But Cori Bush won on The View. Every single time she goes on, I'm like, I don't know how you could get better than that. And she outdoes herself. Nobody outdoes, she outdoes herself. I think she got Megan McCa- McCain a little teary-eyed. And that's a special kind of superpower. So let's roll that clip real quick. Congresswoman, on today's most sacred Martin Luther King Day, um, a lot of us are sitting here feeling hopeless. What do you think we can do going forward to try and bridge divides in this country and work together collectively as Americans? Because I think a lot of people are just feeling, especially after the terror attack, like we are a country completely divided with nothing in common anymore. So I... I am going to say, don't feel hopeless. Let's start with that. Don't feel hopeless because that's how we get through. You gotta have hope. That hope is on the inside of you. Now remember this, we don't go by what happens externally. That shouldn't shake what's happening on the inside of us. We have to stand strong no matter what the adversity, no matter what it looks like, our faith, 
has to be the core of everything that we do. And our faith is our faith in action is how we make change. And so when I think about when I was sleeping in the car with my two babies and my partner, and we were moving that car around St. Louis because we didn't have a home. I didn't lose hope. I was hurt. I was tired. I was humiliated. I was burdened. I was oppressed, but I didn't lose hope. Every single time I got my paycheck and I had $20 left over and I still had to take care of my kids and pay daycare and all of this, and I had $20 left over, I didn't lose hope. I worked on me. And so, no, don't lose hope. Right now, Dr. King's legacy was not about sitting back and allowing other people to do the work. His legacy was not about letting someone else dictate how we should feel. His legacy was about making sure that a dignity and a quality of life for each and every person was available. I am an instrument of peace. That's what you should be saying. I am an instrument of peace. I bring everything that I have, every gift, every talent, every skill, bring that to the forefront and put that to this movement. And so what we can all do is we can do our part to make this an anti-racist society. And that means not just talking to, uh, you know, not just saying I have a black friend or, or you know, I help out, you know, I, I help my Palestinian friends and I do. No, no, no. We're talking about talking to your friends and then your your block, mm. talking to your the people in your religious affiliation or your groups, whatever you're doing, talking to them you're at your job, at the company you own, making the effort, putting a real in like some real intention behind making this an anti-racist uh, country. And so what, and, and how are we also doing that? We gotta make sure people have healthcare. Wait, Every single person wait, deserves healthcare. I feel like she should just do a Sunday show for everybody and just take us to church every Sunday. Just screen an idea, Cori Bush campaign office, create a channel on all of your platforms and just take us to church every Sunday. I need that, I need that. Napoleon, you're shaking your head. What are your thoughts? <laughs> That's definitely that that down south church energy. I, I love it. I mean, we need that so much. It's 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 so good for me. I personally, it makes me feel good to see like a black woman like that who who really is from that element of just you know not having much to 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 be in uh, put in these positions. And we we know what she stands for when it comes to policies and. You just feel it like I, I just feel it. So I feel it in my heart when she speaks. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, just because I feel like it comes from 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 the right place. And, you know, I I, I don't have that thing where I I, I believe that she really means what she, she's going to follow through to with, with her actions. So she, she, she's, she's doing it right. And uh, we, we need that energy. I'm so glad that that energy is in Congress and I want more of it to, to come in because that's what's gonna save us at the end of the day at, at that level. You know, we have to do it ourselves, but at that level, we need more of that. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's, it's not even just that she's, um, it's not just that we need more folks like, that, that have, are connected to communities. There are plenty of people who have run, that have gone through hardship, that are in office, that have gone through hardship, believe it or not. I mean, yes, the average congressperson is a millionaire, but there are absolutely across this country, but they're calcified by the system. And what I find so, so, so moving about Corey is that she has run multiple times. She's fought the system. The last day of her last election before this one, because she ran before, her car was repossessed. And it just motivated her more to run. It's mm -hmm. like every obstacle that she faced along the way from the establishment, from, uh, you know, nobody groomed her. She did it on her own. 
And it's just, she's to me is emblematic of like exact, like she's the flip opposite of what our system is. And she's using her personal stories to convince people like Meghan McCain to support progressive policies. Now, Joshua, you talk about storytelling all the way. And all I could hear in, in her speaking was these stories are moving people that aren't even in our space. Mm-hmm. And she's telling stories and then immediately going to, and now let's talk about anti-racism and now let's talk about healthcare and using them to motivate people to actually be able to dream about something different, which is also the opposite of like the bedtime stories the society tells itself where, you know, how many times have you heard someone say, oh, well, I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I, and I came from nothing and that's why we should keep the system exactly like it is, <laughs> you know, because I made it. So therefore, if you didn't make it, it's your fault. It's literally the opposite point of that. It's, it's drawing the, the inner resources of struggle to be able to have vision in a way that's honest. Like, it, it's like what Napoleon was saying is like you feel what she's saying in your body and you, you feel the honesty and clarity and the truth of what she's saying. I love that. All right. Speaking of uh, honesty, here's not here's something that is completely dishonest. So we have a problem with Fox News right now in that they don't know who they are in this space. Right. One on, on one hand, they're addressing that there were terrorists or white supremacists storming the Capitol. But then they had to flip it really quickly and say it was Antifa. And then they suddenly had to talk about censorship. So they're all over the place. But uh, this one even got me confused. And I'm like pretty fluent Fox News rhetoric. Will Kane, who is uh, on Fox News, blast the media. The media, Fox is the number one news channel in the country. Just want to say that. Uh, for laboring, labeling the Capitol terrorists terrorists and saying, by saying that, we are getting into a very scary authoritarian space. That's authoritarianism, is labeling them terrorists. Let's play that clip. You know, I've been concerned for quite some time that there's been this inflation of inflammatory language. In other words, we've been told, you know, that the events of January 6th started out as chaotic. It formed into riotous. It was right. a riot. Then insurrection, then sedition, then terrorism. And now the people who committed a horrendous act on January 6th are being described as terrorists. If you inflate language like this, if you continually push the bar out, what right. you do is you allow any manner of response, any manner of sin. And then you can get people like former journalist Katie Couric or former journalist Eugene Robinson saying things like this about Trump supporters. I want you to take a listen to this. It's really bizarre, isn't it, when you think about how AWOL so many of these members of Congress have gotten. But I also think some of them are believing the garbage that they are being fed 24-7 on the Internet, by their constituents. And yeah. they bought into this big lie. And the question is, how are we going to really almost deprogram these people who have signed up for the cult of Trump? There are millions of Americans, um, almost all white almost all Republicans, who somehow need to be deprogrammed. They're, it, it, it's as if they, 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 they're members of a cult, the Trumpist cult, uh, and, and who have to be deprogrammed. So, Steve Ainsley, you keep raising the bar of the description of what happened on January 6th. You keep expanding the pool of people you're talking about until you're talking about Trump supporters. And then you can respond with Orwellian language like deprogramming them. We are getting into a very scary authoritarian place quickly. What, what, what is so interesting about this to me is 
this is a network that has like they're latching on to the Trump movement. I th- it took them a second to figure out like what who's our base. First they called it out, and then and then they realized okay, wait, wait, our audience is being pulled from OAN and whatever these other platforms are that are forming. Uh, it's just it's just very strange to me that they would lean into this at this point. Um, obviously, it's completely hyperbolic and they're they're looking to make the progress, the, the liberal movement and the media, the enemy when they are the most popular news network in the country. So, all right, Joshua. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's so much to say on it, right? I mean, it, the first thing just to notice is like their playbook is the same. They just, everything they're doing, they accuse the other side of doing to muddy the waters. And I think that right now in particular, um, it's it's around the battle about Trump's legacy and, and, and all of that. The other thing that's funny to me when, when he kept describing like the expanding terminology, it's like, yeah, because at first we like each day we learn more and more about what was going on. At first it was like, whoa, these people broke into the Capitol. And then like within the next day, it was like, oh, wow, people died. Oh, wow. Like five people died. Oh, wow. They had they, they had help from Congress. It's, it was like so it's like the terms evolved as the information evolved, you know, the, the and there is a debate on the left about the use of the word terrorism right of of the way that 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 word is used by the security states to crack down and we know which direction they end up cracking down is always on the left but that that kind of semantic thing aside um you know it's i i, I wish it was effective to uh, you know i i don't know anyone who's ever been in a cult but i imagine telling them that they are in a cult and need to be deprogrammed isn't the best way <laughs> to uh, no, well, they're, they're, it, they're journalists. They're not like political messengers. Of course. And they're not t- trying to talk to that base. I mean, that's, exactly. you know, but, but I, it, I'm just saying it makes sense why they would, they would pick that clip. Right. Right. Well, you know, what else kind of stood out to me is, and Napoleon, you have, you, you're an international man. You follow international politics. You've seen what happens in very unstable countries. My thought on this was put that event in any other country that is not Western, people storming the Capitol to capture the vice president and hang him outside, their vice president, by the way, not to mention they've been threatening the squad and others left and right. And Fox News parades Nancy Pelosi's face and AOC's face and Ilhan Omar's face and Rashid Tlaib's face and now Cori Bush's face on air 90,000 times a day. If this had happened in any other country, no one would be debating it was a form of terrorism, whether it's a state tactic or message or not. It is insane. Right. I mean, n- never in my lifetime, I, I would have thought I was, I was going to witness something of that nature. And regardless, I mean, it was a big group, but you know, there was a few of them that were looking to, they probably would have took hostages or worse. And then that's probably, that, that's pretty obvious. My thing is, What's ironic, I, and, and I, you know, I agree with Josh, you know, the use of word terrorism could get dangerous with, you know, the policies that come after that. However, they never have a problem using the word terrorism when it's somebody non-white. Like mm-hmm. that just, that exactly. label, criminal, terrorism, savage thugs, whatever, it, it, it gets flown out real quick before any type of evidence uh, comes across. But since it's, you know white supremacy involved it's it's like they're scared to to use that word they've been using that word for how how many years 
I, yeah, I, I, I've been hearing terrorists, terrorists, this, terrorists, that since I was a little kid. And it's like, there there was some deaths. They came out there. Some people had weapons. Some people have zip, uh, uh, zip ties, whatever they call that. There were some military type type people. Yep. I mean, so it's kind of ironic how 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 hard they go to defend the image of, of, of certain people and how quick other people would get trashed and, and thrown the worst labels, like the immigrants when the caravan was coming. Oh we didn't even know who they were, but they were already like criminals, potential rapists, potential sick people who were gonna spread leprosy. But these people are like held to a higher standard. They, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's disgusting to me in a way. I mean, this is this is obviously a, a group that has voted for somebody who's extremely inhumane, who uh, does not have any sort of sense of of any person, even his own movements, uh, personal pains or economic plight or how he was even he even helped build this. My concern, though, is like what happens afterwards. And we're going into this inauguration with uh, it since since we've been airing this show they have eliminated certain agents from the inaugural duty because there's reason to believe that they have been part of a plot to somehow disrupt the inauguration tomorrow, even inauguration without crowds or events. Um, this isn't going away anytime soon. And something else that's not going away anytime soon is since we've been on this show to another piece of breaking news is the U.S. has hit 400,000 COVID deaths. Wow. 400,000 COVID deaths due to, of course, a, a government, uh, a federal government that has not been not responded or taken this seriously and definitely not in time. And of course, state governments who have not taken this seriously and have played politics and economics. Um, let's play this real quick, uh, this clip of CNN, which describes the individual, individualistic competitive system of trying to get a vaccine now for COVID in the U.S., is going on with vaccinations in this country. I mean, the, I think there's a lot of confusion out there. I mean, the, the Trump administration met, you know, failed to meet its own uh, repeatedly reduced targets for vaccinations. But then you hear someone like a Dr. Fauci say, listen, it's not as bad as it sounds right now. Where does it really stand and are things ramping up? You know, I think in trying to gauge if it's as bad as it sounds or not, you really have to talk to individuals. I mean, I certainly know people who got a vaccine relatively easy friends of mine who are doctors or nurses but i know people who are trying to get shots for their parents or grandparents they are on the phone they are online they are trying their hardest these are smart resourceful people and they can't do it it is chaotic in other countries where i talk to folks i know in other countries you pick up the phone you call a central number you make an appointment it is not that complicated here it's really it's it's every guy and gal for themselves and that is really difficult and so let me show you what those numbers what, what that amounts to. So, so far in the United States, about 31 million doses have been distributed. In other words, have been put around the United States in various locations, um, but only 12 million have been administered. So 31 million distributed, but only 12 million have gone into arms. Poppy, Jim. Hmm. We have 350 million people in this country. We're in great shape, guys. I really wish she said why her friends in other countries were not experiencing this, right? Is because... Other countries around the world have national healthcare systems that have mechanisms to distribute the vaccine, right? And that we don't, we don't have national healthcare, which is the consequence of the last 40 years of the destruction of public infrastructure from neoliberal austerity product, uh, politics. It's not like, and, and the, the whole, 
like, I mean, it's amazing how little people in this country, especially the news media, look externally and look at other countries. But when they do, they give just no context at all. It, it would just be, it, it's the best case. I mean, not to beat a dead horse about the case for Medicare for all, but it, it's also <laughs> worth pointing out that the disaster of the rollout for the vaccine here, you know, when you think about the disparities of, in this country, think about how it's going to shake out for the global South uh, around the world. You know, Global Justice Now is currently working on a campaign around that because the the pharmaceutical companies globally are going to absolutely screw this up for the for the whole whole global south. Of course, Napoleon. I mean, this is um, it's it's we're the we're a global embarrassment. We're banned from going into to Europe or Canada uh, because we haven't been able to take care of this this COVID situation. Arizona, I believe, last time I checked, is the uh, has the worst. COVID cases in the world. Um, Just to put this in comparison, I I was, I was looking at globally, you know, how other countries are dealing with it. The highest populated, most dense country in the world is Bangladesh. And they're doing so much better, uh, even with tremendous poverty and uh, government assistance being weakened there. Um, And it, it just, in terms of how many people are in the country, but then you look at Arizona and then soon afterwards is California. California, a progressive state, Arizona, a Republican state. I mean, this is this has gotten so out of hand. I I mean, do you believe Biden says that he is going to start vaccinating 100 million people in the first 100 days? And I really hope so. But if we don't have Medicare, Medicare for all, if we don't have properly funded hospitals, how are we going to be able to distribute these vaccines in time? And if people don't even know how to get them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Uh... It's definitely an opportunity for, for, for all of us to start talking about, you know, universal health care because of that, that issue right there. That's the, the, the elephant in the room, like Joshua said, that they, they don't seem to want to mention. It's, it's, it's working better in other countries because they have these systems in place, because they have this infrastructure. We don't. And on top of the, the, the strategic failure of handling this crisis by the Trump administration, where they should have had a, like a centralized strategy for, for all of America. Like it should be a website. You, you, you take your appointment. They tell you where to go. You show up, you get your shot. And then, and then you keep, you keep it moving. But um, obviously uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping Biden will, will try to, uh, you know, take care and do a better job for, for the sake of lives being, being saved. Uh, however, we, we need to, to go to the root of the problem and, and keep, uh, informing people that this the problem can be fixed with national health care like we wouldn't have that and this is not going to be the last pandemic we're going to go through this is like the test run for the next one so we need to get it together now and start getting it together now and not later and it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's a it's we're in a crisis we're in a crisis we got to act like it and we got to fix these things we cannot try to patch these problems here and there it's, it's going to go out of control you know, it's interesting um, that in New York, uh, during the smallpox uh, outbreak, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, I'll do my math here, uh, they were able to distribute vaccines within two months to 6 million people. And I believe it was even under that, to 6 million people in New York, and the population was, was some more or less equal to what it is now in New York City. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that was, by the way, without nationalized health care. So it's not just that we have a problem without without having Medicare for all. And of course, the injustices. It's also that 
we're not distributing them properly because, you know, maybe it's this free market competitive, you know, this Pfizer versus this company versus this company and they're bidding, you know, the contracts between the governments. It's, it's, you know, as much as we're fans of decentralization, uh, decentralization works when there's, you're starting at an equal playing field. You're not, all of these governments are, have their own interests, right? Including the people who lead them whether it's DeSantis or Ducey or Cuomo or Newsom, they all have their own interests that they are aligned with. And it's framing how they deal with this crisis from day one. We saw it with the, uh, the nursing home uh, crisis in New York. You know, Cuomo can go around and s- sell all the books he wants, taking credit for solving COVID. But the reality is one out of five New Yorkers got COVID in New York State. Anyways, sorry. Let's end this on a bright note. Tomorrow's inauguration, everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Joshua Con Russell and Napoleon De Legend. Uh, just at, uh, for our audience, we are going to be doing special coverage tomorrow. It is going to be a two-hour show covering the inauguration. We start at the same time, three o'clock Eastern, going till five p.m. Eastern. It'll be so much fun. Uh, we'll try to air whatever we can live. I believe that the speech will be done by then, but. You know, definitely check it out. We're going to be doing all the coverage. And let me do some shout outs to everybody in here. Ooh, we've got a lot of them today. All right. YouTube and Twitch, uh, Twitch chat donations and shout outs. Patrick Emmerich, thank you for the love. Patrick says, nice shirt, Joshua. Thanks for the great show. That's the TMBS shirt. Sweatshirt. Is it shirt or sweatshirt? Shirt. Long sleeve shirt. shirt. There you go. It's a Thomas Sankara shirt. You can get, I think you can still get them. Go check it out wherever that. We'll find a link and put it in there. Uh, and thank you to Rumham22 for the tier one sub on, on Twitch. Thank you. Neon uh, Majestic from Twitch. Numiki versus Hassan Wen. You know what? Maybe I'll work on that. Great idea, guys. Uh, Biped or biped snake from Twitch. Numiki, you should 1v1 me on Halo. One versus one-on-one. Uh, see Blood Gulch. Okay, guys. I got to learn how to play these games first. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll do it. I'm down. Ray Lee sends his love. Uh, saw your shout out to my favorite, to my super chat last Friday. And I think you misunderstood what I suggested. I meant an actual physical bookmark to promote the TNS book club and your merch store. Got it. All right. We understand. Uh, hashtag know me book kids. I love that. We're going to work on it. We are trying to work on it. We actually might do something uh, even different. So, so be on the lookout for our book club members. And Dr. Dragon Rider from Twitch wants a Bills Mafia shout out. Yes, okay. I'm from Buffalo. I don't follow sports, but if there's any sports I kind of know, it is all the Buffalo sports teams because if you grew up in Buffalo, and I did, and I did in the 90s, and if you guys knew what happened in the 90s, the Bills went to the Super Bowl four years in a row and lost. And we hated, what's the Texas team? The Dallas, Dallas because they played them two years in a row. You guys know this, the sportsy people. And then also the Sabres went to the Stanley Cup and lost. And I think there was another thing too, like the minor leagues baseball team. So it was a really great year. You know, it was like five years of, of sports in Buffalo, but we just kept losing. So everybody thought Buffalo was cursed. Um, but now it looks like, you know, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards sports justice. I don't know. But Buffalo also is is making these lists for like must-see cities. Must There's been a whole uh, revitalization in Buffalo. You got to go check out Buffalo. I am not doing an ad for Buffalo. But if you want to go, go in the summertime. 
uh, right on the lake, beautiful Lake Erie. There's like a new waterfront there. I'm going to keep talking about Buffalo. You can go into Niagara Falls, just drive along the lake, go to Niagara Falls, very close to Buffalo, like 20 minutes. And then you can even go to Toronto when the Canadians start to let us in again. That's not too far away either. All right, enough about the bills in Buffalo. Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska sends his love and says, the squad gives us hope to keep on keeping on. I love it. Detroit Microsound, wave your hands in the air like you don't care. What? I have no music. <laughs> you can't make me do that. Now they're just going to start making me do things. <laughs> Buckaroo Samurai says, no me, you should play Civilization VI. You totally won't get addicted to that game. I have friends who play Civilization and will be like meeting up for dinner and they're on playing. I'm not doing that one. No, not getting addicted to that. I've seen lives ruined and families ruined by Civilization, any of the Civilizations. Thank you to Professor Harvey K in the chat. And Joshua Khan Russell was in the chat earlier, I heard. Uh, everybody who's in the YouTube chat and Twitch chat. And big, big, big thank you to Midi Docs for working the algorithms. And as always, huge thank you to our moderators, Bob Choke in the Orb and Chuck Diesel on YouTube and Dorian Sapiens and A Difficult Truth on Twitch for keeping that chat room troll free. Love you all. You're wonderful. Thank you to all of our guests today. And we will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern. 